You're listening to The 202 Studio, a podcast series exploring the creative sparks emanating from the District of Columbia. Throughout the series, we'll be talking with artists, humanities practitioners, organizational leaders, and many others. Individuals working behind the scenes and in the spotlight, in organizations, studios, and workshops in all eight wards. As we explore the heartbeat of DC's arts, humanities, creativity, and culture. To learn more, visit dcarts.dc.gov. Welcome to the 202 Studio Podcast from DC Commission on the Arts and Humanities. I'm Jeffrey Scott. Today, we're joined by a theater artist who has done basically every job there is to do in the theater business, from being an actor to director to playwright, administrator, and a professor of theater as well, Miss Jennifer Nelson. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having invited me. Delighted. So let's, there's so much, of course, that we could talk about uh, that you've been involved with in the many different aspects of the theater. So... What was what was the first thing when you first got into theater? What was your was it acting? Was it directing? Was it writing that first drew you to this? Um, it was acting, but mm-hmm. I didn't recognize it as such for quite a while. Um, I, I my teen years, my father was an actor. We lived in Sacramento, California, and when he got out of the military, he went back to a love of his, which was performing on stage. And so my first experiences with live theater were going to see my dad on stage. And he he really loved Shakespeare, so he did Othello and Lear and all of the, you know, the classics. And then he also discovered that he had a comic flair, so I got to see him do My Friend the Fox. Classic children's story. And how was he in it? Uh, He was hilarious, except he fell off the stage at one point. He had to, there was some, the fox... Something like every time the fox would tell a lie, he'd have a, a fit, kind of, sort of. That was his punishment. And during one of those things, he, he jiggled a little too much and fell off the stage. <laughs> but he was okay. It was, it was scary, but he was fine. He jumped back on stage and went going. So uh, anyway, that was my <clears throat> uh, uh, initial acquaintance with theater was seeing my dad on stage. And then I, did a, I tried to do some um, high school theater but um, the high school drama teacher where I was, this was in Sacramento, California, uh, wouldn't cast me as any kind of major role in, in the few productions that we did because I'm African-American. And at the time, there was no colorblind casting. And, the only, you know, she cast me as the maid in one thing. But that was the kind of extent to, to which my high school um, theater experience went. And uh, and so I had no intention of making it a career. Um, I went on to college. My uh, major was political science, and my focus was African government and um, politics. At the time, the uh, African countries were breaking free of their European dominators and creating new states. It was a very exciting Period, and that was my um, my planned métier was to be a specialist on French-speaking West Africa. Okay. And um, so, I, I won't go on with all the details. Okay, so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that's a that's an, uh, an interesting transition, though, to make from uh, studying political science and particularly 
uh, focusing on French-speaking West African, uh, to then coming back into the theater. So uh, we were talking before that uh, you grew up, uh, your family was military, so you mm-hmm. moved around a lot, but uh, you had this home in San, uh, Sacramento. Mm-hmm. What brought you to Washington, D.C. then? Um, well, after I, I finished my BA, I discovered I was I was at University of California at Davis, which is near Sacramento, mm-hmm. and um, discovered after graduating that I could in fact go on because I was a super student. <laughs> I could get into the theater program even though I had not majored in theater. Oh. So I jumped on a whim into the theater department and I was had completed the first year of an MFA, one of the very first MFA programs in the country actually, and heard, oh, oh it's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> What my my best friend had moved to San Francisco to work with the San Francisco Mime Troupe. Okay. And I went to San Francisco to hang out with her and hang out with the Mime Troupe. And that was another kind of mind-blowing experience. And I discovered a world of theater that I had not known anything about. Like theater that could be about contemporary Mm. issues and that could be really relevant to the people in in specific communities, etc. So I thought I would take a year off from graduate school and uh, live in San Francisco for a year. And and while I was there, I saw an announcement for auditions for the Living Stage Theater Company, which was the almost brand new at that point a community outreach program of Arena Stage. This was in the early 70s. And so on a whim, I got an audition, and um, the Robert Alexander, who was running it at the time, um, offered to bring me to D.C. to be part of the company. So I thought I would just do it for a year, maybe two, and then I'd go back and finish my masters and go on with the life plan that I had thought (laughs) was ahead for me. And instead, I got totally entrenched in um, living stage and and discovered that I really liked Washington. And for the most part, I've been here ever since. So, and that was after the MFA is a three-year program. You did the first it was the two, first. This one it was two years was at two the time. Year, okay. it's, it's changed a lot right. since. Okay, so yeah. so you did the, the first year. I did the first year. Got through, and did you go back? At, no, ever? never okay. went back. <laughs> but you didn't need to. You, I I didn't need to. And the only yeah. time I really regretted it was when there are inevitable slumps in the career of a person who works in the arts, Before and you wish you had another occupation. Right. And I thought, Sam, you know, if I had finished that MFA, I could teach. You know, in a, you I, do teach. I, well, I ended up doing some teaching, but that was later. It was sure, much yeah. later, but you know, and but I, but no, I, uh, I never went back and finished the degree. Um, so let's talk about uh, the African Continuum Theater Company because that certainly is uh, one of the things that I think a lot of folks in Washington D.C. Uh, associate you with. Mm-hmm. How did you come to be involved in that? Um. Uh, can I back up a little Absolutely. bit? Absolutely, back up. <laughs> so I was with Living Stage for 20-ish years. When uh, Bob Alexander decided he was going to retire, there um, the assumption had been that I was the next 
person who would run the company. I was the one who had been with the company the longest. The 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 woman Rebecca Rice. I don't know if you ever knew her. She was gotcha, an extraordinary human being. She was Bob's first protege, and she was was instrumental in training me and the people who followed, who came on when she was still there. And then uh, I don't know all the details and not worth going into anyway, but somehow or other, she and, and Bob had a difference of opinion. She left and went on to have a, a, a theater community elsewhere, I mean a theater career elsewhere. And then I stayed for a while and I was the, you know, the queen bee in a way. And I trained because Bob was, as he was getting older, he was, you know, he didn't always want to go back to zero with new people in the company. So the people who had been in the company longer were like instrumental in training the the new ones who came in. And the kind of assumption that I had had, and I think I wasn't the only one that had it, was that I would be, so when, when Bob decided he would retire, that I would step up. Mm-hmm. Would be, and he decided, for reasons of his own, that no, that wasn't going to be the case. He was great in many ways. He was also a very complex human being with sometimes warring mm. impulses. And um, so when he decided to retire... He gave the leadership to someone else in the company who was actually a dear friend of mine and that I had trained. And so I left. And um, I was hurt and angry and um, didn't know what I was going to do, but I wasn't going to, you know, I needed something else. So after I separated myself from Living Stage, uh, I didn't know what I was going to do at first, and then I met uh, John Moore, who was known as Mo, still known as Mo, and he was in the process of trying to help the existing little tiny black theaters, there were several of them, to get organized so that they could qualify for grants and they could, you know, proceed as to be recognized and 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 get some visibility for what they were doing. There were several of these tiny little companies. And run, when are we talking? I, we're in the early 90s, okay. I think. Early 90s, okay. I think. Early 90s. <laughs> and in like late 80s, late 80s early, early 90s. 90s. Yeah, somewhere in there. And um, anyway, I, I met him and, and somehow or other I got involved with that. And he had this vision of creating a, a coalition for of the black theaters in this group. And that was when the African Continuum Theater Coalition was formed. So initially the co was coalition. And he spent a lot of energy in trying to help these companies kind of step up and become professional because they were operating on more community theater um I don't know, values, and they were not really concerned so much with, at the time, with with becoming professional theaters, that this is what they wanted to do. And they were, you know, some of them were doing a decent job, so it's not like they they weren't doing anything right. They just, they weren't doing things that were helping them move into the professional theater world, which is what some of us wanted to see happen, because there, although there had been the D.C. 
black theater that was up on Georgia Avenue, that only list lasted for like three years. And it was gone when Robert Hooks left and the whole thing didn't immediately implode, but it just declined to the point that it disappeared. And uh, so there was some hope that for a while that ACTCO, the coalition, was going to be able to boost at least one of these member companies into being a professional company. And when that didn't appear to happen, to be likely that it could happen, um, Mo stepped away and I got hired. I'm good at getting hired at a job where there's no money <laughs> and nothing but hard work That's to do. Theater, yeah, right. Oh, yeah, you know this job. <laughs> so um, there was a small board of directors at the time, and the ones who stayed agreed. You know, I said, well, the only thing I would be interested in doing it is seeing us become a professional theater and operate as such. And what was your definition for professional, getting to uh, an equity status? Um, well, it wasn't getting to equity right yeah. away, mm -hmm. but just a producing on a different level and, you know, actually having a – create a theater home mm -hmm. and a base and, you know, and, and to get non – I don't think that – I'm not sure that the coalition had nonprofit status. It's been so long. I'm not, mm -hmm. Details are all fuzzy to me. But anyway, of just be making it more reputable in the – what was at the time a really growing – um, theater community in Washington, but because by this time we're in the late '80s, early '90s, when you know we started having a lot of theater happening around town, and um, so I stepped in. At first, thinking I would just do it for a year or two, and just kind of get it on its feet, so I could go off and do whatever I wanted to do. I was still thinking I might go back to California at this point, and um, that didn't happen. I ended up staying for like 11 years. And in that time, I think we did some really great work. And I got it to the point where we could get funding from major foundations. And in part because of some people I had met in the time when I had worked at Arena. They weren't Arena Stage people necessarily, but they were aware of what ACTCO, the, the shortened name of African Continuous ACTCO, they were aware that it had existed, so some of them were, were eager to help, but they only wanted to do something where they thought it was going to had a, a, the potential for growth, you know, and for long life, not just show up and do one production and then disappear. And um, I had worked at Arena at this point, the point I left that part out. I had gone back to work at Arena in the um, administrative group. I, I did some grant writing and learned a lot more about the the producing and the inside working of a theater. Um, and I would have stayed there, but then there was a kerfuffle that I don't want to talk about that, that led me to leave. And when, so that's when I went over to ACCO. And um, gradually I was able to um, get enough support to that we could produce at least two shows a year and even hire an equity actor here and there which you know was on the lowest rank possible but it was great i mean because there were there were african american equity actors here and they weren't getting jobs you know or, and it just wasn't what was happening necessarily and we were still at a point then when the, a lot of the theater community here was hiring from out of town 
for, you know, if they didn't find what they needed right next door, they'd go to New York or somewhere else. And um, so it uh, damn near killed me a couple of times. But I was determined I was going to stay to get it to be where it could stand without me. So that I didn't want it to be about me. I wanted it to be a company that with some with vitality enough to stay alive at the point at which I was going to leave because I always knew I, I wasn't going to stay forever there. And so as you were getting to the point of, you know, being able to to do fundraising and now do some development and get some, some money in the coffers so that you can hire an yeah. equity actor every so often. Yeah, and a staff. And a, and a staff. At one point we had yeah. a staff pay of some four bills. of us. We all got salaries. Um, <laughs> Uh, were you were you receiving any grants or funding from the commission? Yes, well absolutely. Okay. Yes, and I, Mo had actually set that in motion because I, I, you know, I can't remember, but I can't remember if he worked for the commission at some point, mm-hmm. or but he was very uh, cognizant of how to work with the commission before I got there. So he, you know, I learned some of that from him too, and um, and that was a great assistance to the organization. And yes, the, the, the commission was very supportive, but, you know, of course they have their own limitations. So it's not like they could say, Oh, we'll give you enough money to run a company for a year. <laughs> Probably <not. No. laughs> um, but yes, so that, that was when, and, and uh, during that time, I think probably I also had had one or two individual artist grants as well. I'm also a playwright. I don't do it so much anymore because I, got busy doing other things. But um, yes, I'm, I've been uh, connected with the commission for a long time in different ways and a fan of it. And I always suggest to local artists, if they don't know about it, that they should find out about it and find out what they might be eligible for or et cetera. And you brought up the playwriting, which was, that was the, the next thing I was going to ask you about is where did you find time to start? When did you start writing and where was the time to write a play? Or several plays. Just twenty-four know. hours of the day. <laughs> I don't know. Um, the the first play I wrote was called "Torn from the Headlines," and it was based loosely on some events that had been in the news in the, at the time about young African American men who were getting in trouble, you know, mm-hmm. dealing drugs and just trying to be cool. And my story was a kid who got shot about a kid who got and. And um, we did that at the Source Theater okay. space. And Pat Sheehy used to run the Source. Became was a very good, strong ally during this period. So that that was where we were producing so was this using her space. Early two thousands, late nineties, or yeah, okay, probably late nineties ish, somewhere in there, <laughs> the distant past. <laughs> Yeah, Pat was was Pat was an ally, you know, for a lot of not small companies, not just Apco, but um, and and um, so yeah, that was the first. I don't know that if the, I'm not sure if that was an Actco production or not. If it were, it was when Mo was still running the organization. It was before I took over oh, I running the company, and um, so that's that was the, that was my first step out as doing like a professional show, mm-hmm. kind of trying to make a professional this level. Is a full length two act play. Um, one act. It, I'm not sure if it was two acts. It was, but it was it was full length, full length. 
um, time-wise. Time, yes. It was a, and it was very good, and, and I'm still very proud of it. And um, in fact, in fact, because it included hip hop, here's something I'm proud of. We can talk about. I got credit for being the first person to put hip hop on stage. So the beginnings of hip hop theater. The beginnings of hip hop theater, and we got invited. the The cast of that company, the, the invited to New York for the first hip hop theater festival mm-hmm. to do some excerpts from that play. And there's a book actually. I could credit. I could even say, look, it got in print. There, um, I can't remember the man's name. We wrote the book, of course. Um, but there's a book about the beginnings of hip-hop theater, mm-hmm. and he acknowledges ActCo as being the first company to put hip-hop on stage, on a professional well, stage. Yeah. And uh, the Hip-Hop Theater Festival is still uh, produced and, annually here in D.C. That's right. They still do it. Yeah. And I later had a show, put a show in one of the, the first one that they did at the Kennedy Center. Mm-hmm. We had put a show in there, too. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So that. Um, any any advice, any words of wisdom of for this next generation of theater artists, whether they be playwrights or directors or actors or even administrators? Should, well, they, be, should they try to be everything? Yeah, that's a good question, too. Um, I, I'm a little reluctant to go too far in my in saying recommendations because this is a different era. You know, when I came here first in 1972, Washington was a different city than it is now. And look at these buildings that are, we're sitting in a studio where buildings are being, probably apartment buildings or condo buildings buildings. right across the street. That we're now seeing this influx of younger adults and families that weren't here at all when I started, you know, and and so in the, the, the 40 some years that have passed, the nature of the city, the character of the city has changed. So I'm not 100% sure I'm a person who can give a perspective on what, how is that going to affect theater, except that I, I do see that it's becoming more and more like New York, that every little nook and cranny can be used as a performance space. So people are choosing to do their plays in bars, you know, because there aren't enough theaters. And they're not going to be more theaters. Not, you know, nobody who has the money to build a theater. And um, I, I suspect that it's going to be harder and harder because of the the, in, the the great blooming of theater that's going on here and in other cities as well. That it's going to be harder and harder for theater artists to make a living doing. The theater was always a challenge. I mean, I was fortunate because then I could also teach. And I've taught in all the universities in the area, except Howard, I might add. (laughs) Never been asked to teach at Howard. Um, And, you know, so I was supplementing my income with, um, with teaching and, you know, other skills that I have. I don't know. There, there just aren't going to be enough jobs for everybody to do that. I mean, if you wait tables and do theater, okay, well, that's, okay. <laughs> that's a choice, too, if that makes you happy. Oh, we used to say, what, that floats your boat. <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, it's it's just going to be an ongoing challenge. It was always a challenge. It's just, just the ground has shifted some. So the nature of the challenge is different now than it was when I started and yeah. when I first got here. 
I, I think in, in, in speaking to others, other theater artists who were, you know, in the 80s, 90s, there was there was space. There was like that's right. And, and space in terms of like a physical space. Yes. And population space yes. because you know the population was a bit lower back then. Yeah. There were some, there was vacancy that could be filled, right. and uh, they took advantage of that and were successful that's at right. that. And now that's been filled up. That's so right. they restored. We restored to legitimacy some spaces that had been abandoned. Exactly. That you know a small theater company would go in there and paint and chimp and da 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 and turn it into a usable space. And then a couple of years later, somebody said, "Oh, we want to put a store here. We're going to put apartments in this building." Mm-hmm. And you guys right. got to go. Right. The, the the what's the the building downtown at E Seventh and E? I think it is right near the. The stadium, and now there's a restaurant on the corner, and it's a big office and apartment building now. I don't know the name of the building, but it's at 7th and E, I think. Anyway, that it was at one time that before I got here, that was a department store for a, 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 a chain of department stores that went out of business. And in the first couple of years when they left it, the D.C. Commission on the Arts, which was new at that time, took over the building, got hold of the building, and turned it into usable space for artists. And you could get rehearsal space in there. There was one room that was turned into a performance space in there. And there were people, you know, offices in there. And it was just a great, wonderful Flux. And this would have been back in the 70s? Um, I think it was later, maybe early 80s. Late early 80s so. um, and even, you know, the theater that the Shakespeare Theater now has in that building, for a while that was the D.C. Commission of the Arts was managing that. So oh. the other, you know, we would have like annual showcases of local oh. artists on that stage and things like that. And then, um, you know, we, we always knew it was temporary. They had, all, you know, the city or whoever had owned it. It said, "This is a, this will be a temporary situation." But it was fabulous. It was fabulous, yeah. and I think that inspired a lot of local artists too. Because, uh, like I did, in the, the the ground floor space was like a black box. We used it. I did one or two productions in there, mm-hmm. and um, and then that that may be where the restaurant is now. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, if if there were another that kind of similar kind of explosion of mm-hmm. space, available space, that would make a big deal. And 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 I, but I do say I do see that th- this is starting to happen in more of suburban areas now. There's a there's a place in which I don't really I've never worked in in um, northern Virginia, uh, just outside the Beltway, where there's a theater now, and it's it's mm. similar kind of thing on an old. Like, I think it's a Shopping center, center, you know, that those things are starting to happen in more um, suburban areas because the population has changed too. So now they don't want to come into DC and not and have to pay forty dollars to park if they could get a parking place to see a show when they can go right down the street Mm -hmm. and see a show and park for free. So that this is this is one of the impacts that the theater has had on the community as a whole, is that we're we're We've spread our wings, so to speak, in terms of where we produce, where we show up. Um, theater artists and artists in general, but 
tend to be very resourceful, <laughs> in my experience. Of yes. dealing, and or you starve. Or you starve. <laughs> I mean, I would say back home, duct tape and bailing wires. Uh -huh. <laughs> you can put a show together with that. So, uh, but it is—it's a different model. It's, it's going to be something it's different. A totally you know? different world. Maybe a different type of theater that we can't even think of right now. Mm -hmm. Jennifer, thank you so much for coming and speaking to us. We could, I mean, I could talk to you all day. <laughs> You've been listening to The 202 Studio, a podcast series of the D.C. Commission on the Arts and Humanities. Thanks to the commissioners and staff of the Commission on the Arts and Humanities, the Office of Cable Television, Film, Music, and Entertainment, and special thanks to our mayor, Muriel Bowser, for her support of the Arts and Humanities in the District of Columbia. And thanks to you for listening today. Thank you.